Just like we need physical safety in the workplace, we also need psychological safety. Psychological safety is essential for decision-making, effective communications, experimentation, and pretty much everything that happens at work. So what is this thing called psychological safety, and how do we get more of it? Well, that's what we're exploring right now. Today's guest is Rich Fernandez. Rich is the CEO of SIY Global and a former executive director for people development at Google. His PhD in psychology from Columbia University, as well as his extensive background in senior leadership for multiple Fortune 500 companies, has made him an unmatched thought leader in the industry of workplace psychology. Rich is an expert in cultivating workplace environments that foster emotional intelligence and mindfulness from the top down. Rich and I talk about psychological safety and the interplay between trust, inclusion, belonging, and safety. He shares why psychological safety is so critical and how you can foster more of it within your team. Now here's the conversation. Are you a manager, boss, or team leader who aspires to level up and unleash your team's full potential? You're listening to the Modern Manager Podcast, and I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Each week, I explore effective strategies and provide actionable insights that supercharge your management abilities, optimize team performance, and foster a healthy workplace culture. Become a rockstar manager and help your team thrive at themodernmanager.com slash more. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rich. I'm super psyched to talk with you about psychological safety, which is such an important topic for managers, and we just don't talk about it enough. So I'm really glad to have you with us. Yeah, excited to talk about it. Lots to say. Okay, so let's start with the definition of what is psychological safety, and specifically, how is it different from trust, which we talk a lot about as a as a society, but we don't talk about psychological safety. So what is it, and how is it different from trust? To begin with, psychological safety is simply the idea that as a team member, you're able to take risks and to learn from them uh, should things go wrong and be supported in that learning by your leaders and managers. Too often, I think um, there is sometimes a blame game that happens um, or uh, you know, it's not okay to make mistakes. And it's really about um, doing your best, being able to make a mistake if it happens, right? And then learning from it. And like I said, being supported by your leaders in doing so. Is it different from like trusting that your boss is going to be okay with you making a mistake? Or like, how do you think about psychological safety and trust as being kind of, are they two sides of the same coin? Is one a subset of the other? They're a little bit different actually uh, in concept. The first thing to know is that when I when we talk about psychological safety, it doesn't necessarily mean we're enabling mediocrity because sometimes that's a myth that gets thrown around that like, oh, you're just going to make mistakes and it's always okay to make mistakes. Well, it is always okay to make mistakes, but there's also the expectation that we're going to do our very best. And I think that's the point of departure for psychological safety. You know, we have this micro practice we call, you know, breathing in, I do my best, breathing out, I let go the rest. And you've also heard the expression, you know, uh, try and fail and learn um, and do it fast. And I think that's really the notion of psychological safety because failure is an experience that will happen throughout the course you know, of a team's work. But it's a question about how do we do our best and learn from that failure. Now, differentiating it from trust, we actually have an equation around trust that we like to use, and it's adapted from a long time book called The Trusted Advisor. Um, and the idea is that trust comprises of different elements. So there's reliability and credibility, which is simply you say what you're going to say, you do what you're going to say you're going to do, 
and that you're also credible. You have domain expertise. But there's another element that we like to call connection. And that really hinges around psychological safety and empathy. And those elements allow trust to happen. And so in some ways, trust is the broader umbrella concept and psychological safety is a component part of what makes trust. I love this idea that you talked about of psychological safety doesn't mean anything goes. It means that we can create a culture where we are working hard, doing our best, and that in our ability to do that, it, it requires us to be able to take risks and that we can take those risks, we can make those mistakes, and that we're going to learn from them and keep going and that we actually can't do our best if we're not in a position to take risks, if we don't feel that psychological safety. So we're only doing like almost our best, but we can't do our full best because we can't actually go to the places where, where there's risk. That's absolutely right. You know, in fact, creativity and innovation can't happen without some risk, without some element of experimentation. But in order to experiment, you have to feel like it's okay to experiment, um, perhaps not get the outcome you're expecting, and then to learn from it and try again. As the listeners may know, I worked at Google for a long time, running the executive education function there. And uh, one of the things that um, we learned as an organization was that the most effective teams had as the number one element the ability to take those risks and to fail and to learn. And that was psychological safety being the number one element of effective teams. Uh, and so that's really where we arrived at from and how we kind of distilled this notion that psychological safety is really what makes an effective team and allows for creativity and innovation. I want to go back to this framing around trust of having these three different components for a second. Is it possible to have psychological safety without the broader domain of trust? Like, can you still feel like it's possible to take those risks and to to be innovative and creative and to try things if you don't have the broader trust in your team? Or they all kind of have to go hand in hand? They all have to go hand in hand. And in fact, um, later I can talk a little bit about one of our um, one of our programs called Effective Teaming. And we have a model. Um, in which psychological safety is the first element of the model. So it's called the BITS model, B-I-T-S, it's an acronym, belonging, inclusion, trust, and then safety. But really it starts from safety. So you first have to feel a sense of safety and connection with your leader and manager in order to then trust them, in order to include it and belonging and a sense of belonging. And when all those elements are in place, starting with psychological safety, because if you don't feel safe, it's hard to really trust anyone, right? I mean, made me think about your own experience, right? If you didn't feel like, let's say, a manager or a leader had your best interest in mind, um, and in fact, might be really super critical or looking to kind of like blame, it's really hard to trust them, isn't it? And I know later you're going to ask me about a, a manager I may have had, and, and I have to say that the point of departure was uh, psychological safety, which promoted trust, inclusion, and belonging, that experience that I actually had. Uh, and I think that's essential for teams. You have to have all of those elements. And like I said, the beginning place is creating a sense of safety, psychological safety. I'm wondering if you can share the journey that either you have experienced or maybe a team you've worked with of how they went from kind of wherever they were at their starting point to building that psychological safety into the trust and the sense of inclusion and belonging that eventually kind of took hold. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll talk about my team currently, um, which is fairly new. We're about a, been about a year and a half uh, in business. And back in May, we had our uh, first sort of in-person offsite. 
uh, and we had um, some sort of new team, old team things to work out, you know, some different dynamics to work out, different roles, power, all these things that um, were all of a sudden in the room. And we had to talk about them. But being an emotional intelligence company, one of the things we like to do is focus on how we can actually become aware of these things and talk about the relationships that they create. So we went deep and we were able to like really, and as as the leader of the organization, I tried to make it safe for us to talk about this, right? That this wasn't about creating blame or um, one way being right and the other one being wrong, but really welcoming everybody's experience. So hopefully that, I think it created a sense of uh, belonging and inclusion and trust. And as a result of that, we did work through, I think, um, some very, very um, challenging team dynamics and issues. And it started, I think, putting the team on a footing where they were able to really work effective, effectively cross-functionally together because they did have a sense that they could raise issues openly uh, and authentically and transparently, um, work through them. And then we were able to, I think, work cross-functionally to launch one of our big new things that we had just done uh, this a month ago, which was our first ever global summit, uh, which we held in Lisbon, Portugal. And we had a bunch of our customers and clients, our teaching community from around the world, the general public was able to attend. Um, and that type of vision and that type of outcome couldn't have happened if we didn't pull together as a team. But we needed May in order for us to be able to you know, get to that July outcome, uh, which was to create that sense of safety and belonging and inclusion and ultimately trust so that we can work across our different silos and then have uh, an ex a successful outcome. So that's a real-time example from my current organization uh, at a team level of how I think um, psychological safety enabled a really great outcome. That's amazing. Congratulations on such a huge summit. It sounds like a really amazing event. I want to go back to kind of where, like what managers can do right? Like whether or not we can come together for an offsite or we just have to kind of do it in our day-to-day -day experience mm -hmm. as a manager and whether you can, you have your dispersed team and you're trying to build the safety across Zoom or Microsoft Teams or at a distance or in person, what are some of the things we can do to just get a sense of, do we have a psychologically safe environment to begin with? Like, should we just assume that we don't? Or are there ways that we can start to just get a sense of how do my team members feel? Are people taking risks? Are they feeling comfortable being themselves and sharing their their thoughts with us? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, Amy. And you know, I think one thing as humans is that we kind of have this negativity bias. You might have heard of this, right? Where we tend to pay attention to sort of negative input much more easily and readily than positive input. <clears throat> and so that's evolutionary in nature. Right? We needed to pay attention to the things that um, would cause us danger. But we tend to lead with those things. So we tend to, in organizations, very often be critical, look for blame, you know, and not be particularly kind and nice to each other. All of that does not promote psychological safety, and often it's our default state. What it does promote is an activation deep in our brain of what's called the limbic system, which is our sort of fight-flight response right? Our kind of guardedness, right? It's a survival instinct that we experience when we feel socially isolated or, um, you know, excluded or unsafe. And also the other interesting thing about the brain, just to, to touch on the neuroscience of this a little bit, because we're a, sort of a science-based curriculum co approach to, to training, 
Um, so we look at the brain and what happens in the brain. When people don't feel a sense of safety, the parts of their brains, the pain matrices, the neural networks that are um, associated not only uh, with uh, social interaction, but also physical pain are activated, the very same ones. And so we have literally a physical bodily reaction as if we're being harmed physically when we feel socially unsafe. And you see this a lot with teenagers and, you know, all throughout our lifetimes, actually, when we feel like we're part of the out group, it's really painful, right? And so oftentimes that's the default state because we're all trying to get stuff done. We have stakeholders we're accountable to, and it's very easy to default into blame and into meanness and into, you know, criticism. And again, that activates these pain centers in the brains of the recipients of that type of behavior. So for managers, I would say, be cognizant, first of all, start with awareness and emotional intelligence of your own sort of state and how you're showing up. And for managers to create psychological safety, if you think about that trust equation, connection, empathy, understanding are critically important and demonstrating those. It's not enough to say, you know, I'm going to understand what you present to me. It's important to demonstrate that you understand. So how does a manager or leader demonstrate that they understand? I think first and foremost, listen, and listen in a very specific way. Listen for the purpose of understanding. If that sounds simple, but it's not easy because most people listen for the purposes of arguing back, refuting, reacting, or driving their own agenda. Think about it. How do you listen? Uh, and I'm saying this to the listeners now. How is it that you listen typically at work? Are you listening to react? Are you listening to respond? Or are you just simply listening to understand? So that's really important. That's the first thing a manager can do. Listen with the intent to understand and nothing else. And then the second thing is to empathize. Well, what does that mean? How do you do that? Like at a concrete behavioral level? And I would say you can do that by asking good questions, open-ended questions. A good question as a leader or manager who's trying to promote empathy and seek understanding is open-ended. So it usually leads with something like, how? How do you think that came about? How do you think that happened? What do you think happened there? Um, again, seeking to understand. Very rarely does it begin with why. Why did you do that? Why did that outcome happen? Why did you choose that decision? Right? When you start with why, oftentimes it's a close ended question because there's usually a right and a wrong answer. The why question is almost like a why, comma, stupid, <laughs> did you do this thing? As opposed to what happened? Um, what do you think we can do better there? Um, so, really orienting the question around being open ended is critical for creating empathy and safety. For the price of one book per month, you get hundreds of dollars of value from a Modern Manager membership. Last week's offer for a private strategy session with Tasha and Sharon is a $150 savings, and it's still available if you join now. These are such important little nuances, right, with with listening. And you know, one of the things I do a lot with my coaching clients, and I tell all my managers to do this with their teams, is when someone is sharing with you to reflect back what you're hearing, right? It's like demonstrating of understanding and it's so easy and it makes you look so smart. <laughs> I mean, it makes exactly. you look so good because you're just 
you're, you're just sharing back. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're saying is it's really important to listen and to listen actively. Is that right? Right. Suddenly you have demonstrated, to your point, how you're, you really want to hear what they have to say and that you are checking to make sure that you got it right. And then those open-ended questions are great. My favorite one is, tell me more about this. And it's it's the question I ask whenever I don't know what else to ask. When someone's explaining something and I'm like, just tell me more. Tell me more about this, right? It's such a great way, like the how question, how did this happen? Or how might we do this? Or you know, what what else about this? It just opens things up at, to your point where you get more information and you can really connect with somebody and show that you really you really do want to hear what they have to say. It's so beautiful. And I, I love your your point about the why, the like, that no matter how we frame it, it, it always uh, feels like it's an aggression, even though it's it's really not meant to be. All right. What else? Keep going. Well, I loved what you said. And I just want to actually um, emphasize a couple of things that I, I think I heard you say. And that, that's reflective listening. Right? I think I heard you say, is that right? You know, um, but, but one of the things I think I heard you say was uh, active listening. Right, that's a great way to frame it. Um, it. It's important to understand what active means. Active doesn't mean rifling back with your responses and reactions. Active means actively seeking to understand. So I love that, Mamie. I think I think that 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 really is uh, at the heart of it. When I say listening, we could call it active listening. Maybe that's that's the thing. And then reflection, reflecting back. What I think I heard you say was this. Is that right? Um, just checking. Um, so those are those are. Those are beautiful things. One of the places where I feel like psychological safety comes up in teams is when you're making a decision and someone on the team wants to disagree, but they also don't want to crush the whole momentum that has been built. Are there techniques that you've seen used effectively to create that kind of environment or create openings where people can share the like, the watch outs or the, this isn't going to work and here's why, or I'm really nervous about whatever it might be in a way that can actually be heard by their colleagues. Because it's not just the boss, right? It's not just the manager, but it's actually the whole team that has to have that psychological safety in place. Well, and I think starting with the the leader or manager, I would say, um, orient yourself around inviting other perspectives. Don't just get one track minded about it. Um, and so that could look like you could ask the team, what else haven't we thought about? Can we hear the other perspectives on this just to give fair play to alternatives? Who has alternative ideas here? Uh, we really want to consider them. So you're kind of empowering the team to bring in contrarian views if there are ones. So really important to set the tone if you're a leader and manager to do that. If you're a team member, maybe just leading with that, you know, acknowledging that like it sounds like we've got a really good plan in, in place that we're cons- or that we're considering. Um, can I? I'd love to offer an alternate perspective. So just kind of putting it out there that there's an alternate perspective, and might I offer this uh, just for our consideration? Um, but if you're a leader or manager and you set that tone that that it's okay and it's welcome, uh, that really opens things up a lot. You're right. Where I mean, we role model, right? Like we are the ones as the leaders in that team who are setting the stage and setting the tone for everyone else. So what about if you have a colleague who is always the criticizer, who is the one who is like, doesn't matter what ideas are on the table, they're always, you know, right there ready. And I will say like, my husband is like this. He instantly jumps to all the reasons why something's not going to work. And while it's fine for him to do that in front of me, like sometimes in other environments, 
that's not what you want, right? So sometimes there are people on the team who just, that's how they think and they're just, they're trying to be helpful and they're going right in, but it can scare other people away, right? It can scare other team members away from wanting to share ideas because they they don't want to get jumped on and they don't want to feel like like their ideas are, are up for criticism before they've even had a chance to breathe. Are there are suggestions you have for how to talk with that individual team member or how to talk with your team in general about how to make space for those kind of dissenting views in a way that's useful and not going to shut things down. Well, same rules apply, right? Um, around inclusion, around safety. Um, so you want to acknowledge and welcome that there's a different perspective here, right? And then one thing that can be helpful is just having a team agreement or principle or even uh, an agreement with the individual that we like to call in our organization, disagree but commit. You're welcome to disagree. We need to hear the contrary perspective because we might be so in the box that we can't see outside of the box. And if you have something outside of the box that's important for us to consider, by all means, please, let's talk about it. Let's have healthy debate. Let's have intellectual friction. That's another really important thing because creativity often comes from intellectual friction, but done safely done in an inclusive way. You can have friction and inclusion at the same time. And so I think that as a, as a manager, it's really important to foster that, to welcome that, but then also to align the group that we may have differing voices here. They're all welcome. And in the end, when this gets decided, you can ask for the commitment that you may disagree, but commit. So putting in place a principle like disagree, but commit, and then welcoming all voices and making it okay to share contrarian views and that that's valued and that there's a contribution to be had there too. So welcoming intellectual friction and then disagreeing but committing as well can all I, be true. I love those principles. Those are fabulous. I think every team should have those in place and do the work to actually live them because that's always the hard part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because these things are concepts and they sound like cool catchphrases, but it's not enough to say, yeah, I, yeah, I, uh, I'm going to disagree, but commit. It's the actual behavior, right? <laughs> Where you're disagreeing and truly committing, not kind of committing, not like disagreeing. And yeah, I'm not going to go buy into that and actually do it. You know, nothing passive aggressive, like actually do what you say you're going to do. Uh, and that's true for leaders and managers and team members overall across the board. Well, and what I particularly love about that, and I was in a meeting last week where this happened, unfortunately, which was in the meeting, everyone said, okay. And then as soon as we were out of the meeting, I got a bajillion phone calls from people going, what is going on? Why? I don't understand. This is not what I want to be doing. And I'm like, wait a second, why didn't you just say that in the meeting when we could have just dealt with it? It was like they were ready to commit, but they didn't want to disagree. And so we we actually need to go back and say, wait a second, guys, we need to have that conversation together where we can grapple with those difference of, of opinions and we can grapple with the what is the right decision to make here and not just all jump to, okay, because we feel obligated to just go along and then have all that side channel back channeling that is so disruptive. I love this idea of disagree publicly, do it in the meeting or do it with the team. And then once decisions made, commit to it and let it go. All right. I want to shift gears for a second and ask, what is hard or what have you seen be challenging for managers 
who want to build psychological safety, kind of like, how are we getting in our own way? What are the things that that we need to get past either fears or mindsets or behaviors that we need to kind of be really open and honest with ourselves about in order to actually be able to role model and to, to cultivate this kind of team environment? Another great question, Mamie. Um, so it's it's pretty clear to me um, now, um, over a couple of decades of working in different uh, industries, uh, the problem is always the same. We think as managers and leaders that we need to drive results or we need to be good people, people, and good and, and nice or or good managers, right? And we separate those two things. Like, well, I really need the business results. And so even if the leadership or or the teamship of this particular individual or this particular team isn't all that, it's okay because we're getting results. And I don't think those two things are binary. I think you need people to get results, right? And you can't separate those two things. Uh, but too often we're like, it's okay, we're just going to get the results and, and, and management, leadership, Team effectiveness, those are important, but if I don't have them, we'll deal with it later. You can't deal with it later. One contributes to the other and they're interconnected. I think that's the mistake managers often make. And so what that sometimes looks like is a manager will not want to give very direct, potentially very challenging feedback to people on the team, especially people who are executing like crazy and delivering results. Because you can deliver results, which is, you might say, well, versus isn't that the point of the business? Aren't we supposed to deliver these results? Well, yes, but they won't be sustainable, right? And so the question is, can you deliver results over time and circumstances? Not if you break the team. Not if you allow toxic behaviors to thrive within your team. It will break your team and you'll start to see diminishing returns. I've seen this time and time and time again. People leave the organization. People stop doing their best. Em employee engagement flags. Employee engagement is what we call discretionary effort. The sort of rational as well as the emotional commitment you have to the job, their level of motivation, it all starts to flag. And so can you get short-term results by just focusing on the results and not focusing on people and how they're doing? Yes, you could. Is it worth it in the mid to long term? No, it's not. And so I think leaders and managers need to focus both on the what, the results, and the how. How is this being delivered on my team? Where might we need to focus to, to support people better, to develop um, team members or leaders within the team. And all of that has to go together. Just as much as you invest in the business, for example, it's important to invest in the people and the two really go together. I mean, I'm a little bit biased, I will admit, because I've always worked in that latter arena. So you could call me out on that, but I've seen it. I've worked in financial services for a decade. I've worked in technology for a decade, Google, eBay, JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America. Those were the legacy organizations I was a part of. And I've seen the same dynamic play out across those industries. And even today, you know, we work with tons of industries in 60 countries around the world. And I see this all the time in organizations. An overemphasis on one, which is usually the business results, and a sort of ignoring of the other, which is the leadership results. So business results and leadership results really need to go together. Absolutely. And I've seen this in many teams that I've worked with as well. And the way that I always put it is, if you are noticing unhealthy behaviors or toxic behaviors or challenging behaviors from a team member, 
and you're not doing anything about it, the rest of your team isn't mad at that other person. They're mad at you for not stepping up and fixing it. And so you think you're like getting away or just being like, well, I'm prioritizing the business, but actually what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a worse position. That's what's in it for me as the leader is all my team members are staring at me saying, we see what's going on over there. How come you're not stepping up and, and fixing this problem? Because we, we see it. So it's, it's so important. It's so, so, Absolutely. So important. And you may, I don't know, just a little empathy for my fellow leaders out there uh, or managers, anyone who's in a position where you're, you're working with others and, and leading or managing them. Like it's hard. Like, you, you know, and like uh, sometimes, you know, you may think, really, I have to do this today again or this, you know, like it's an ongoing thing. It is an ongoing thing, my friends, <laughs> because you wouldn't have a job you wouldn't be a leader if there weren't problems to solve. And the problems are both business challenges as well as people challenges. Both problem sets exist. Both problem sets are in your ballywick, in your remit as a leader to deliver. And that's the primary focus of, uh, of the work as a leader and as a manager, I think, because hopefully you have a team that's deeply expert at what you, they do and you could totally trust them. That's how I feel about my team. I mean, I have the most amazing most gifted, most talented, most wonderful people in the organization. And they're just, dude, they're crushing it. They're crushing it. Um, and so my job is to just uh, help them, you know, keep doing what they're doing and be onward leading and to address what problems may arise in the overall dynamic as an organization. Um, and as a business strategy, certainly, but also leadership strategy. And so again, that's that's our that's our job as leaders and managers. Yeah. Well, this is a perfect place to transition for you to tell us about a great manager that you worked for and what made this person such a fantastic boss. All right, Yvette Vargas, if you are out there listening to this, uh, Yvette was my boss uh, when I came out of graduate school and kind of had my first really substantive job at a senior level at Bank of America. I was working in the investment bank there, and um, but not as an investment banker. Um, in uh, a group called Learning, Leadership, and Organizational Effectiveness. This was kind of like the people function, if you will, um, of that organization. And Yvette was my manager. And now I was fresh out of grad school and I had had jobs previously to this. I had worked at JPMorgan Chase, for example, and other places, but not at a senior level, not with stakeholders at this sort of senior level as well. And frankly, I was a little bit terrified stepping into that because it was, again, first time out of grad school, like it got really real, really quick. And these were people who were running huge businesses that I had to support from as a learning and leadership and organizational effectiveness leader myself. Uh, but Yvette was my boss. And the first thing she did, as we've been talking here, is create a sense of safety for me. You know, she said, everything you've learned, all your experience is going to contribute to do you doing great in this. So immediately I felt welcomed. I felt supported. I felt encouraged, um, which led to trust. And again, I'm going to work up through the BITS model. Remember earlier I said belonging, inclusion, trust, and safety, but it starts at the bottom with safety and trust. So we had that. She made me experience that. And what I learned very quickly was I really didn't know half of what I needed to know. I mean, I had studied it, I had some work experience, but at this level, there were some of my colleagues that had been at it for a while and they knew so much, but she knew that they knew and maybe I needed to come up the learning curve. So she did the next thing in the bit smile, which is she really included me. She said, oh, you know, 
This may be the first time uh, out for Rich doing an executive business review with uh, with his stakeholders. Can you just can you all team you know can we re- review the business reviews of how we run a business review? And in some ways, she just kind of brought me along. She kept including me in the learning journey, and I felt so incredibly included and supported that I felt a sense of belonging. Like, oh yeah, no, I'm one of these folks too. I have a place at the table. She helped me succeed there, and that was really a key stepping stone. It was one of the jobs, you know, sometimes you have a job in your career journey where you just learn a a disproportionate amount of things that you take with you for the rest of your career. That's what happened in, in that role, and it was because of Yvette. It was because of her as a manager literally um, creating this kind of bits experience, belonging, inclusion, trust, and safety for me. That's why years later, now in our organization, when we designed effective teaming, I literally was taking a walk one day and I was like, all the elements of, of effective teaming are, how do we break them down? And I was literally thinking it's belonging, inclusion, trust, and safety. That was on full display. And like a, what I said earlier, it was behaviors that created the experience of belonging, inclusion, trust, and safety by my manager, Yvette, at the time. And it set the foundation for me of my career. And it was something I carried forward when I myself became a manager. And always, and even to this day, I aspire, and you're going to have to ask my team members, but I aspire to foster belonging and inclusion, trust and safety. Amazing. She sounds fabulous. And that you learned Great. I hope everyone has a chance to work for Mandra like that. And to wrap us up, where can people learn more about you and keep up with your work? Oh, absolutely. So just go to siyglobal.com. That's our organization. We do neuroscience-based emotional intelligence skills and social skills training for leaders and organizations. And check us out. We have uh, various offerings. We have teacher trainings where you can learn and become certified in these methodologies. Um, so it's it's a great place to just come and visit us. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Such a pleasure to talk with you and learn more about psychological safety. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mamie. Rich is providing a free copy of his ebook, Emotional Intelligence and Mindfulness at Work, Why Human-Centered Skills Are Essential to Future-Proof Your Organization. And this is available to members of the Modern Manager community. In this ebook, you will find the latest research conducted by SIY Global and other experts around the impact of emotional intelligence and mindfulness on four key organizational trends. Why current levels of stress and burnout are costly and unstable. How connection and belonging in a disconnected world are essential for team performance. The emerging demands for human-centered leadership. And the need for resilience and agility to innovate and adapt. To get this special guest offer and many more member perks, become a member today at themodernmanager.com slash more. All the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.